Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, July the 27th, 2023. It's more than almost 80 years since the Second World War ended, uh, but it hasn't really come to an end yet in lots of different ways. Uh, we did a show with the great British historian last year, Richard Overy. He has a new book out on the Second World War, and we asked whether it had ended yet in the context of Ukraine. Of course, it appears as if it's quite literally still going on. And last week, we did a show with Evan Thomas, a very distinguished contemporary American historian, on his new book, The End, uh, uh, The Road to Surrender, about the end of the Second World War on the uh, Japanese front, which, of course, touched on Oppenheimer and atomic weapons, which, of course, also hasn't come to an end, still a source of huge debate. Um, the Second World War seems to be a prism, a mirror, a thing that reflects and retracts all our deepest concerns. We did a show last year with Matthew Delmont, another distinguished American historian who has a new book out on the way in which uh, African-American soldiers were disgracefully treated and at the same time by the, uh, the services and at the same time behaved quite heroically. When it comes to women, we've done lots of shows on women in the Second World War. One with Judy Battalion, whose book, um, it's a big, huge bestseller, The Light of Days, is the untold story of women's uh, resistance fighters in Hitler's ghettos. Uh, I think Spielberg's going to make a movie. That's a, a, a film about Jewish female resistance. And then uh, we also did a show with uh, Damien uh, Lewis, who has a new book out, Agent Josephine, about Josephine Baker, the great uh, African-American uh, singer, her uh, brave work during the Second World War. Um, we haven't, though, done a broader conversation about women's role in the Second World War, and we're going to today with my guest, Lena Andrews, who has a brand new book out. It's out next week. Valiant Women, the Extraordinary American Service women who helped win Second World War. And um, Lena is joining us from Washington, D.C. Lena, congratulations on the book. Uh, do you think, in a sense, Lena, the Second World War hasn't ended, is that it, it's a mirror that reflects all our concerns from race to gender to atomic weapons? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me and for putting me in such a uh, distinguished company. Those are many of my current favorite books and reading lists. So um, I hope if readers find those interesting, they'll also find mine up to muster. Uh, but, I, you know, I think it's I, this is I'm so glad you asked the question, because I've I say this in every interview for people who think World War II is sort of an old, dusty conflict that has no ramifications today. They're missing the point, really. You know, this not just on sort of contemporary military issues, as you mentioned, Ukraine. Um, you know, we can talk about the ways in which World War II mirrors so much of what's going on there today, or I shouldn't say mirrors, previews so much of what's going on there today. Um, but on a lot of the social and integration issues, so you'd be surprised at how 
similar a lot of the debates and how familiar a lot of the debates about integration and diversity and inclusion in the military are today as they were, you know, 80 years ago. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. World War II's relevance is more today, I think, than I've seen it in, in recent memory, just with all we have going on sort of globally and then also socially, the, the sort of larger dynamics um, which are playing out in the military. And, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a perfect time for a book on it, but it's also uh, a really good time for us to, to think about how we can learn from the lessons of the past, because I think that's so much a part of what this book is really aiming to do is to take those lessons and bring them into a contemporary context so people can understand what we can take from them. I just mentioned Oppenheimer, of course, the other major movie this summer, we just did a show with it uh, about it is Barbie, uh, <laughs> film yeah. about a doll and a, a sort of uh, uh, a, quite a, a radical, I would guess, a feminist movie about Barbie, a critique of Barbie. To what extent um, in the 1940s, of course, this was before Barbie was invented, uh, Barbie very much a, a product, I guess, of the America of the 1950s, um, to what extent was the image of women as, shall we say, Barbie dolls, what was, was that one of the great struggles and challenges for the, for the valiant women, quoting the title of your book? And there were many of them, you say more than 350,000 who participated in this war. Was it a, a cultural struggle and breakthrough? Particularly when, of course, it came to men. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, to just put this in context for listeners, you know, as you mentioned, 350,000 American women served in uniform in World War II. So you may have heard of sort of the icons of Rosie the Riveter and of, you know, the spies and code breakers and resistance fighters who served behind the, behind the front lines. But the sort of bulk of women's participation was in many ways in uniform, um, which in 19, if you can think, if you could imagine back to 1941, 1942, when we were start, starting to think about these programs, was totally alien to most Americans. You know, of course, now, for those for those interested in this little slice of history, folks may know that women did serve in uniform in World War One, but it wasn't as such a large scale. And so you're exactly right to bring up the issues of image because it, that's exact. That's what primarily some of the senior commanders were at first very worried about. They were extremely worried about things like uniforms. You know, would women be able to wear pants or would they be in skirts? Uh, you know, how would they break out of the language about women being what was then called camp followers, but now we you know would call prostitutes. Uh, so there was huge there were huge image concerns and you know actually in many ways the army who went first in integrating women um really struggled to to meet the criticism whereas the navy for instance learned from that experience and much better in projecting an sort of elite image of college educated women in night nice tight unit you know neat uniforms doing all of the sort of sophisticated work of the military uh but all of the services were were consumed by the issues of image and rightly so because they had no there was no way um that they were going to get away with any controversy and they knew that from the very start a couple of weeks ago i was up at the uh fdr museum in hyde park uh, in new york and there was a, an exhibit actually of fdr and eleanor roosevelt's relationship with african-americans how important were um iconic female leaders, and there weren't that many in the 1930s, like Eleanor Roosevelt, in terms of um, getting 
American men in particular to accept the notion and, and American military figures of accepting the notion of American service women? Well, they were critical. Um, and I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the specific women who led the services and Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, you know, unsurprisingly, she was one of the most important uh, sort of public figures who came out in support early of women in the military. So, you know, she was she was critical in many ways. You know, she ended up I, I was able to find these letters with her and Ovita Kalpabi, who becomes the head of the Women's Army Corps, you know, exchanging mail about various issues. Um, and Ovita Kalpabi is actually chosen in large part because of Eleanor Roosevelt's endorsement. And she turns out to be an inspired choice. Um, she's a sort of Texas, uh, you know, poised, graceful, elite socialite um, who also uh, happens to run the Houston Post at the time. And it's just incredibly organized and very savvy. Yeah, she um, looks like, I mean, just judging from her <laughs> Wikipedia <laughs> entry, she looks like she's just stepped out of a Hollywood movie. Yeah, I mean, she's also stunning. That also <laughs> doesn't have, you know, it's very good for image concerns, but she... Um, yeah, she that was my uh, way of saying it without actually saying <laughs> yeah, it. Like you can get away with it. Uh, but she was really, I mean... Uh, incredibly gifted when it came to organization and bureaucracy. Eleanor Roosevelt sees that and brings her up in front of the senior military leaders like General Marshall, who can clearly see she's the right woman for the job. Um, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt then goes on to connect her with head of the heads of the British women's services to make sure she has all the information she needs, like, you know, stay away from controversy. That's the first thing the British warn her against. Uh, and then finally, you know, she ends up using her bully pulpit. She writes in my day early on how important women can be to the war effort, not just in manufacturing, but also in uniform. So it's really this coalition of sort of senior women who actually have no formal authority, but manage to insert themselves into the larger formal hierarchy and navigate it um, pretty, pretty savvily from there. So Ovita Kalpavi is one of the best examples, but of course there are others in the Navy and the um, in the Air Force, the WASP, the Women's Service, Air Force Service pilots were led by Jackie Corcoran, another iconic um, figure. But we, unfortunately, you know, most people don't know about these women because their stories have been sort of untold for so long. So that's a big goal of the book and something I hope people take away is an understanding of this, of these incredible women who paved the way so that these 350 other women in uniform could come behind them. Harry Truman, who, of course, brought the war controversially to an end um, because of his concern in part with the lives of American service men and women, uh, noted that uh, our debt to the heroic men and valiant women in the service of our country can never re be repaid. They have earned our undying gratitude. America will never forget their sacrifices. When it comes to the sacrifice of women, uh, Lena, was it unavoidable? I mean, given that all the men went off to war, was the fact that women, the rosy, the riveters of the world, they were brought into factories, they were brought, if not onto the front line, certainly to participate in the war effort. It wasn't a moral choice, was it? It was essential. Yeah, you know, so I will say all the women who served in uniform in the United States were volunteers. At a certain point, we had a complicated convert Marshall and Ovita Kalpabi had a very complicated conversation about whether that would need to change. Um, so, you know, in, in pretty much every after action report, when they asked women why they signed up to serve, they said patriotism first. But you're absolutely right, which is the second reason. And mainly the reason that folks like Marshall and Hap Arnold and all the sort of famous Dwight Eisenhower, all those guys, the reason that they got on board with women 
uh, integrating into the forces was because they needed them. They had a big manpower math problem. So to give people a sense, you know, by the end of the war, 16 million personnel serve in uniform. That's an enormous part of the population. We haven't gotten anywhere close to that since. Um, and not only that, but we also have competition in the manufacturing industry for those exact same personnel. So it becomes very clear to people like Marshall, Ernest King, others who are sort of trying to figure out the manpower equation that they're not going to have enough people to feed both the manufacturing machine and the war, war fighting machine. And so they start to look to marginalized, historically marginalized groups like women, people of color. I'm so glad you mentioned Matthew Delmont's book, which is terrific. I highly recommend it. Um, and it is it is essentially these groups that are that are filling in the gaps between the support that excuse me, the manufacturing and the front lines and providing those essential support links that most people don't know about, but are actually critical to winning wars. So it was very much a practical decision by senior military leaders. And fortunately, they were asking a population of women who were ready, um, you know, from a sort of patriotic standpoint to serve. They saw their brothers and their uncles and their, you know, dads going off to war and they thought, why not me? Uh, so it was really a combination of the two. The war itself, of course, was very controversial until the bombing of, of Pearl Harbor. FDR would, I think it seems like he would have wanted to end the war, but there was always a uh, get, uh, get involved in the war, but there was a significant domestic opposition. Um, we've done shows on uh, men who refused to serve. Were women divided as well? I'm guessing that women of, of German descent, certainly of Japanese descent, would have been much more ambivalent than uh, than the mainstream uh, Anglo-American uh, female. You know, it's an interesting question. I think, or like you say, before before Pearl Harbor, particularly like 1939 to 1941, there is a very big undercurrent, sort of from dispersed elements of the population that don't want to go back to war. Um, and, you know, and people have to remember the context here, of course, is that just 20 years earlier, we'd been in another European conflict. And quite frankly, we'd lost a, a lot of young men and a lot of communities were just starting to rebuild a generation. And there was a lot, particularly in the Midwest, for instance, there was a lot of um, electoral pushback on FTR to not commit ourselves to a European war. And of course, Pearl Harbor changes that. Um, a lot of people are now able to see that this is no longer European. It's come to our shores. Um, but I would say, you know, in some ways, yes, there was ambivalence. I think Pearl Harbor, most of the stories I read, for instance, uh, a woman in the book, Gertrude Pearson, who ends up working in the Signal Corps in France, um, she tries, you know, she hears about Pearl Harbor on the train to New York going to see a movie and walks directly to the nearest recruiting station. Now, she can't do anything about it, but she's one of many young people who just sort of run right there. Um, and it's interesting you bring up sort of German and Japanese Americans. There are several instances, um, and there are a couple of really very few books on this, but some very good ones uh, about women who, Japanese American women who literally signed up for the Women's Army Corps from internment camps. So there is, and for the record, had incredibly useful skills, right? They could often, in often cases, speak Japanese, um, hugely important. So, so you know, it, it really varies from person to person, but I do think that period of 1939 to 1941 really required a lot of pulling along and a lot of, you know, politicking by military officials. Marshall complains about this in his memoirs uh, because it was complicated for people. And I, you know, I think it's something we should remember when we think about going to wars. 
these days is that it's not always clear cut. It wasn't clear cut in the greatest sort of most cataclysmic uh, conflict of the 20th century. So why would it be now? Yeah, and the German, the German and Japanese American female uh, attitude to the war is self-evident. I- I'm guessing also there was ambivalence within the Irish community, given their relationship historically with the British and also uh, Italian Americans. Do you cover that in, in in Valiant Women? I don't get into it as much, in large part because you know it's such a tricky balance. I have I feature a lot of women already, and so many of them end up on the cutting room floor. Um, I do. I spend a little time on Jewish American women, which is a you know a really interesting sort of subplot to this. Um, yeah. There's one woman, Frances Langer, who unfortunately I wasn't able to include in the book, but I have a whole section on her uh, sitting on my hard drive. But she was a a Jewish American nurse. She um, became a bit of a celebrity because she wrote this one of the most stunningly written, beautiful uh, letters uh, to uh, to the Stars and Stripes newspaper was published. And then like the day later, she was killed in enemy action. Um, so she at the time was pretty famous, but um, has sort of been, again, like many of these women, lost in history. So I'm sure that there are, and I can tell listeners, there are many stories that aren't in this book that I wish were and continue to be lost to history. But I've tried to at least cover some of the really, pow- the truly, really powerful ones. What are the key institutions, uh, Lena? I know you write uh, about the WACs, the Women uh, Army Auxiliary Corps, and the WAVES, the Women Accepted for Volunteer Service. Were there formal institutions which enabled enabled you as a historian to tell the story of, of, of American women in the in the Second World War? Yeah, I mean, if you're asking about research, which I hope you are, because I love talking about my research, but if not, we can talk about other things. But um, you know, the way that I approach this is the way, you know, I'm a trained academic, so I approach all my research essentially the same way, which is triangulating through different methods. The first was to go to archives and to use the existing resources that the military holds, that private institutions hold, um, to get a real sense of the sort of letters and the the texture of the time, the like schedules and menus. Um, so some of the most fun research I did was I went to Harvard and looked at the personal papers of women like Catherine Keene, who served in the OSS, the predecessor to the CIA. And she had donated her uniforms, her um, code books, her letters, her diaries. I got to flip through all of those amazing things. Um, and she's tracking German tanks uh, during the war. Uh, and then in addition, you know, I, I did a lot of memoir. You can see all the books in the background. Um, it's how you know I'm an author because I have a bookshelf full of books. Uh, and, I, and I like to show it off. Um, so then, you know, do the classic memoirs. But the best part of the research, hands down, archives aside, which were really important, and I do love a good archivist, um, was interviewing li- living veterans. So I got to interview in the end about six living veterans, six women living veterans, and lots and lots of families of living veterans um, who were able to give me a lot of personal papers and privately held collections. So I got to w- interview women like Millie Bailey, um, who's featured in the book. She's a terrifically interesting and dynamic woman. She just passed away a couple of years ago, but um, she was in the Adjutant General Corps, which doesn't sound like much to most people, but she was part of this enormous enterprise, keeping track of the 16 million personnel I mentioned earlier, making sure they were in the right place at the right time uh, with the tools that they needed. It was a critical job. Um, again, totally sort of understated and underappreciated in our contemporary understanding. But after sitting down with her three times, it became really clear that, you know, she had an incredible story to tell. She's also a black woman um, who served in the Corps. And so, you know, it, the the research for this was just an absolute 
pleasure. And I encourage anyone who has the privilege of knowing a veteran of this war or a woman veteran of any war to ask them their story and listen very carefully to what they say. Now that black woman uh, who you cover, who sounds very interesting to me, is Charity Adams Early, yeah. um, who died in 2002. Tell me about her. What's so interesting about her? I'm just delighted you asked. I love uh, Charity Adams. She is She's everything you would hope for uh, in an American patriot in the in World War II. And I should say, um, through the work of a really committed group of uh, Black women veterans, the unit and charity, um, the unit that she headed, the 6888, the Central Postal Directory Battalion, and charity herself have started to finally get the credit that they're due. They just received the Congressional Gold Medal, and I think they're going to be the subject of a Netflix feature film produced by Tyler Perry. So I'm so hyped about that. Uh, tune in, everyone. Uh, but so essentially, this was the group of women in the Women's Army Corps, as you just mentioned, the, the Army's um, women's program. All Black women, um, talent-sized unit, and they were deployed overseas. They were the largest unit of Black women deployed overseas, led by, at that time, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams. I think she was actually a major at that point. I can't remember when, when it shifted. Um, but she... Um, she is just such a dynamic leader. She's incredibly whip smart, um, so talented at the top of her class at every opportunity. Um, and she essentially oversees what was a, a male battalion, which most people don't think of as being critically important. But when you think about the time, right, male was the lifeline home. And so there was a huge backlog in Europe um, around men at the front lines right around the Battle of the Bulge getting news from home. Um, and it was really demoralizing. And Charity Adams and her unit does an incredible job of clearing that backlog. I think something like in an eight hour shift, they could get through like 65,000 pieces of mail, which is unheard of. They beat every record of any unit that had ever been posted there. Uh, and in large part, it's because of Charity Adams's leadership. And she faces, you know, the brunt of all the racism that the unit. is. Yeah, facing. I was going to ask that. I mean, were the black women as badly treated as, as the black men that, that yeah. Delmont uh, covers in his book? Yeah, you know, I think in some ways, um, the intersectional element of their presence, both being women and being black, means that they get it kind of from all sides. So not only are they getting sort of discrimination based on their sex from male soldiers, but they're also getting discrimination based on their race from other women soldiers. So, uh, you know, there are some pretty heartbreaking stories in Cherry Adams's memoir, which I encourage, encourage folks to read if they can. Uh, you know, things like having to go out after midnight in in Europe so that people would so that they could prove that the women didn't have tails. Right. Like it's like a just appalling sorts of things. But this is what Charity Adams was dealing with. To, to Proving to who? The locals? To the locals. They were, you know, it's like these these horrific stories are not being allowed to use the same facilities as the white wax being prevented by their fellow soldiers from using the same yeah. facilities or staying in the same hotels. And it was Charity Adams who faced those, you know, those disparaging remarks or suggestions. And she was one who would say, no, we're not, we won't stand for it. We'll stay, we'll stay somewhere else if you're not going to let us stay with our, you know, the women who are literally wearing the same uniforms as us. Um, so, it, you know, it's really it's hard to read and it's hard to write, but it's important. And I put it in the book for that reason, because the Army at that time was segregated, as Delmont points out so articulately in his book. And it had lots of really nasty manifestations, particularly overseas. Um, so Charity Adams, I think, is, is an inspiration for many reasons, not just because of 
the incredible work that she did, which I think is primary. We got to remember she had a very difficult job. She did very well, but also she did it in the face of extraordinary racism and sexism. Um, she got it, you know, kind of from all sides. Uh, Lena, we did a show last week also about Hollywood's treatment of the Second World War and actually the dropping of the bomb. Some of the characters in your book look as if they start. I mentioned uh, Yvette uh, Culp Hobby, mm -hmm. who, who seems to have stepped out of a Hollywood movie. Uh, others like um, Florine Miller Watson, uh, uh, an aircraft test pilot, looks as if she has just come out of a, a Hollywood studio. Were there films made about women participation? She, she, I'm guessing that if not then, certainly now. Yeah, you know, um, thank goodness for Tyler Perry for doing a six triple eight movie. I'm excited about that. Uh, there are very few contemporary films. I will say there are some terrific recruiting films. If you, they're um, a little bit, you know, they don't age well. Obviously, there's a lot of it that you're like horrified by, but there's other parts of it that are really um, transporting and tell you a little bit about the time. And the Women's Air Force Service Pilots are fascinating organization of women, about a thousand women who were pilots. They were actually a civilian organization until they were retroactively given military status in the 70s, Florine Miller being uh, among the best of them. Um, they were led again by this woman named Jackie Corcoran, who's picture perfect made for a movie. Someone has to do a movie on her. She's like uh, such mm. an interesting Maybe character. Maybe someone's going to pick it up after your book. I hope so. I certainly hope I so. I mean, one of the sad things, I guess, about the story you tell is that a lot of women are really anonymous. You you write about one, uh, Jesse Contrabecki, an instrument mechanic, but she's invisible, certainly on the internet. How many of the women that you, you write about are pretty much anonymous? You know, um, the vast majority. And I think what's kind of, so Jesse Contrabecki is one of my favorite examples because nobody knows Jesse. You know, she's uh, not Jesse, different list, last name, but um Nobody really knows her story outside of a couple veterans community and her family and me. But here's what Jesse was doing during the war. She's an instrument mechanic. She's fixing altimeters and gauges on Navy planes at the Naval Air Station Jacksonville so that those planes can be redeployed in the Pacific during the major offensives in 1944 and 1945. Now, if you don't think that job is important, uh, you, you're woefully mistaken, right? We are facing major constraints in terms of material at that time. And we need people to repair planes so that they can be used because the air campaign is hugely important in the Pacific. Uh, but like you say, you know, nobody's going to know about Jesse's job. It also helps for the record that she has small hands, <laughs> which we talk about women serving the military. It actually, we, we do bring certain unique skills, one of which is small hands are really good for small tools. Um, and in 1944, this becomes a big asset. And in fact, she's very good at her job. Um, so, you know, I think the vast majority of the 350,000 American women were in these sort of invisible support roles, but these are the roles. And if you ask any frontline soldier, they will tell you they cannot do their job without folks behind them, making sure they have the tools and the equipment and the training that they need. Um, and so Jesse is the perfect example of that. I think the vast majority of women share her story, um, which is one of extraordinary contribution, but very little credit. And this book really is uh, the main goal of it is to bring to the sort of average reader, the general reader, an understanding of how all that adds up into something that really is impactful. A couple of years ago, I was at the World War II Museum uh, in uh, New Orleans. I'm sure you spent some time there. From what I can remember, there was some credit made, talking about credit to the, to, to, to the women uh, who 
participated one way or the other in the war effort. Do you think it's enough? Do you think there's a need for a, perhaps a World War II museum in the New Orleans style with significant resources focusing exclusively on, on the female contribution? Well, I'll tell you this. Um, the place that I learned about this story for the very first time, and this was well into my research on World War II, so it was a little uh, embarrassing for me as someone who thought I knew everything about World War II. And I would encourage the folks who are listening who um, you know, are are sort of World War II buffs to really think about, think hard about the story that they know about women. Um, but the first place I learned about it was at the Military Women's Memorial, which is at the, the entrance to Arlington Cemetery. Um, and it covers women sort of from, from World War I all the way to today and their contribution to war. Um, but, but for that sort of serendipitous stumbling on the Women's World War II exhibit, this book and my understanding of these women might not exist. Um, so I think there is a lot of power in the way that we remember and the visibility of that remembrance. Um, and the Military Women's Museum is doing a memorial is doing a terrific job of really getting the word out. Um, also, you know, of course, the World War II Memorial is doing doing hard work in in, in a similar context, although it's a sort of larger one. Uh, you know, I would love to see a million monuments to all these women, <laughs> and this is my little monument, right? This book is my way of saying. Uh, these what these women did was important, but as far as I can say, as I you know understand it, I, I think we could have a uh, a monument in every town because most of these women were coming from all over the country. Um, and as much as we remember the heroic men who served, as Truman asked us to, I think we really we've got a lot of catching up to do on the valiant women. Lena, you mentioned my namesake, a woman called Keene, who was in the OSS, who later became the CIA. You yourself are a military analyst for the CIA. You have a PhD from MIT uh, in, uh, in political science, focusing on security studies. Uh, to what extent do you, uh, along with just the being thankful for, for the, the women, how, how much does, is it reflected, for example, in the CIA today, I mean, had these women not participated during the Second World War, would the CIA be what it is today? Not that I'm sure it's ideal. I, I'm not sure how uh, willing you are to offer any kind of critique of the CIA when it comes to uh, the opportunities for women. How, how is all this reflected in the contemporary military, which you know and see and work in in your day job? Yeah, yeah, of course, I can't comment extensively on my work. That's part of that comes with the uh, <laughs> comes with the territory, lots of signed agreements. Um, but what I can say is this, I think the one of the places that the agency and also the defense community writ large, and I would say this about the women's veterans community, especially really excels is in knowing their history. Um, and I am really proud to be a part of that community, a particularly community of women who know their forebearers, know their stories, even if they're not sort of popular Wikipedia page ones. Um, and that sort of motivation, that identity of, of being someone who understands where we all, how we all got here um, was a big motivating factor for me to write this book. And, you know, many of my biggest supporters were my agency colleagues. So it's, it's something that I think is, is really shared in this community is a sense of history and a sense of knowing history. Um, now, in the larger sort of veterans community, I, I think that's also where we see a lot of a lot of the efforts to get these stories 
told, and I'm, I'm, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that, you know, I am building on books and memoirs and um, discussions of service at church organizations and schools that are primarily being held and facilitated by women veterans. Um, and that community, I'm very grateful to. They're some, they've been some of the best inroads for me. Uh, but substantively, I think also, you know, it's just like, it's worth saying that I wouldn't exist. My career would not exist. My, you know, passions would not, I would not have these opportunities, but for the women who served in World War II. They were the first ones in the door and they knocked it down and they did a terrific job at their, at what they were asked to do. And because of that, the rest of us have a chance. So I'm, you know, it's a thank you, but it's also an acknowledgement that um, had it not been for them, I would not have, you know, I would not have the opportunities. I want to be sitting here um, talking to you about operational, <laughs> operational stuff if I, if it hadn't been for them.